Chapter 26 Tommy, you look down in the dumps, he cried. The hood of his cloak was pushed back on that day, and he looked almost normal. Almost. Tommy did feel down in them. He had suffered through a long luncheon at which his father had praised Peter's scores in geometry and navigation to his advisors with the most lavish superlatives. Rowland had never rightly understood either. He knew that a triangle had three sides and a square had four. He knew you could find your way out of the woods when you were lost by following Old Star in the Sky, and that was where his knowledge ended. That was where Thomas' knowledge ended, too. So he felt that luncheon would never end. Worse, the meat was just the way his father liked it, bloody and barely cooked. Bloody meat made Thomas feel almost sick. My lunch didn't agree with me, that's all, he said to Flag. Well, I know just the thing to cheer you up, Flag said. I'll sh show you a secret of the castle, Tommy, my boy. Thomas was playing with a butterlug bug. He had had it on his desk and had set his school books around it in a series of barriers. If the trundling beetle looked as if he might find a way out, Thomas would shift one of the books to keep him in. I'm pretty tired, Thomas said. And this was not a lie. Hearing Peter praise so highly always made him feel tired. You'll like it, Flag said in a tone that was mostly wheedling, but a little threatening, too. Thomas looked at him apprehensively. There aren't any... any bats, are there? Flag laughed cheerily. But that laugh raised goose flesh on Tom's arms anyway. He clapped Thomas on the back. Not a bat, not a draft, not a drip, warm as toast. And you can peek at your father, Tommy. Tommy knew that peeking was just another way of saying spying, and that spying was wrong. But this had been a shrewd shot all the same. The next time the bugger lug found a way to escape between two of the books, Thomas let him go. All right, he said, but there better not be any bats. Flag slipped an arm around the boy's shoulders. No bats, I swear. But there's something for you to mull over in your mind, Tommy, and that's you'll not only see your father, you'll see him through the eyes of his greatest trophy. Thomas' own eyes widened with interest. Flag was satisfied. The fish was hooked and landed. What do you mean? Come and see for yourself, was all he would say. He led Thomas through a maze of corridors. You would have become lost very soon, and I probably would have gotten lost myself before long, but Thomas knew this way as well as you know your way through your own bedroom in the dark. At least he did until Flagg led him aside. They had almost reached the king's own apartments when Flagg pushed open a recess wooden door that Thomas had never really noticed before. Of course, it had always been there, but in castles there are often doors, whole wings even, that have mastered the art of being dim. This passage was quite narrow. A chambermaid with an armload of sheets passed them. She was so terrified to have met the king's magician in this slim stone throat that it seemed she would happily have shrunk into the very pores on the stone blocks to avoid touching him. Thomas almost laughed because sometimes he felt a little like that himself when Flag was around. They meant no one else at all. Faintly, from below them, he could hear dogs barking, and that gave him a rough idea of where he was. The only dogs inside the castle proper were his father's hunting dogs, and they were probably barking now because it was time for them to be fed. Most of Rowland's dogs now were as old as he was, and because he knew how the cold ached in his own bones, Rowland had commanded that a kennel be made for them here in the castle. To reach the dogs from his father's main sitting chamber, one went down a flight of stairs, turned right, 
walked 10 yards or so up an interior corridor. So Thomas knew they were about 30 feet to the right of his father's private rooms. Flag stopped so suddenly, Thomas almost ran into him. The magician looked swiftly around to make sure he had the passageways to themselves. They did. Four stone up from the one at the bottom with a chip in it, Flag said. Press it, quick. Ah, there was a secret here, all right. Thomas loves secrets. Brightening, he counted up four stones from the one with the chip and pressed. He expected some little bit of jiggery-pokery, a sliding panel perhaps, but he was quite unprepared for what did happen. The stone slid in with perfect ease to a depth of about three inches. There was a click. An entire section of wall suddenly swung inward, revealing a dark vertical crack. This wasn't a wall at all. It was a huge door. Thomas' jaw dropped. Flag slapped Thomas' bottom. Quick, I said, you little fool, he cried in a low voice. There was urgency in his voice, and this wasn't simply put on for Thomas' benefit, as many of Flag's emotions were. He looked right and left to verify the passage was still empty. Go, now! Thomas looked at the dark crack that had been revealed and thought uneasily about the bats again. But one look at Flag's face showed him this would be a bad time to attempt a discussion on that subject. He pushed the door open wider and stepped into the darkness. Flag followed at once, and Thomas heard the low flap of the magician's cloak as he turned and shoved the wall closed again. The darkness was utter and complete. The air was still and dry. Before he could open his mouth to say anything, the blue flame at the tip of Flag's index finger flared a light, throwing a harsh blue-white fan of illumination. Thomas cringed without even thinking about it. His hands flew up. Flag laughed harshly. No bats, Tommy. Didn't I promise? Nor were there. The ceiling was quite low, and Thomas could see for himself no bats and warm as toast, just as the magician had promised. By the light of Flag's magic finger flare, he could also see they were in a secret passage which was about 25 feet long. Walls, floor, ceiling were covered with ironwood boards. He couldn't see the far end very well, but it looked perfectly blank. He could still hear the muffled barking of the dogs. When I said be quick, I meant it, Flag said. He bent over Thomas, a vague, looming shadow that was, in this darkness, rather bat-like itself. Thomas drew back a step uneasily. As always, there was an unpleasant smell about the magician, a smell of secret powders and bitter herbs. You know where the passage is now. And I'll not be the one to tell you not to use it. But if you're ever caught using it, you must say you discovered it by accident. The shape loomed even closer, forcing Thomas back another step. If you say I showed it to you, Tommy, I'll make you sorry. I'll never tell, Thomas said. His words sounded thin and shaky. Good. Better yet, if no one ever sees you using it. Spying on a king is serious business, prince or not. Now follow me and be quiet. Flag led him to the end of the passageway. The far wall was dressed with ironwood, but when Flag raised the flame that burned from the tip of his finger, Thomas saw two little panels. Flag pursed his lips and blew out the light. In utter blackness, he whispered, Never open those panels with the light burning. He might see. He's old, but he still sees well. He might see something, even though the eyeballs are of tinted glass. What? Shh! There isn't much wrong with his ears, either. Thomas fell quiet, his heart pounding in his chest. He felt a great excitement that he didn't understand. Later, he thought that 
He thought that he was going to be excited because he knew in some way what was going to happen. In the darkness, he heard a faint sliding sound and suddenly a dim ray of light, torchlight, lit the darkness. There was a second sliding sound and a second ray of light appeared. Now he could see Flag again, very faintly, and his own hands when he held them up before him. Thomas saw Flag step up to the wall and bend a little. Then most of the light was cut out as he put his eyes to the two holes through which the rays of light fell. He looked for a moment, then grunted and stepped away. He motioned to Thomas. Have a look, he said. More excited than ever, Thomas cautiously put his eyes to the holes. He saw clearly enough, although everything had an odd greenish-yellow aspect. It was as if he were looking through smoked glass. A sense of perfect, delighted wonder rose in him. He was looking down into his father's sitting room. He saw his father slouched by the fire in his favorite chair, one with high wings which threw shadows across his lined face. It was very much the room of a huntsman. In our world, such a room would often be called a den, although this one was as big as some ordinary houses. Flaring torches lined the long walls, and heads were mounted everywhere. Heads of bear, deer, elk, of wildebeest, of comorant. There was even a great featherex, which is the cousin of our legendary bird of the phoenix. Thomas could not see the head of Niener, the dragon his father had killed before he was born, but this didn't immediately register with him. His father was picking morosely at, at a sweet. A pot of tea steamed near his hand. That was all that was really happening in this great room that could have, at any time, held upward of 200 people. But now just his father, with a fur robe draped around him, having a solitary afternoon tea. Yet Thomas watched for a time that seemed endless. His fascination and his excitement with this view of his father cannot be told. His heartbeat, which had been rapid before, doubled. Blood sang and pounded in his head. His hands clenched into fists so tight that he would later discover bloody crescent moons imprinted into the palms where his fingernails had bitten. Why was he so excited simply to be looking at an old man picking half-heartedly at a piece of cake? Well, first you must remember that the old man wasn't just any old man. He was Thomas' father. And spying, sad to say, has its own attraction. When you can see people doing something and they don't see you, even the most trivial action seems important. After a while, Thomas began to feel a little ashamed of what he was doing. And that was not really surprising. Spying on a person is a kind of stealing, after all. It's a stealing a look at what people do when they think they're alone. But that isn't always one of its chief fascinations. Thomas might have looked for hours if Flagg had not murmured, do you know where you are, Tommy? I don't think so, he was going to add, but of course he did know. His sense of direction was good, and with a little thought, he could imagine the reverse of this angle. He suddenly understood what Flagg meant when he said Thomas would be seeing his father through the eyes of his greatest trophy. He was looking down at his father from a little more than halfway up the west wall, and that was where the greatest head of all was hung, that of Niener, his father's dragon. He might see something, even though the eyeballs are of tinted glass. Now he understood that, too. Thomas had to clap his hands to his mouth to stifle a shrill giggle. Flag slid the little panel shut again, but he, too, was smiling. No, Thomas whispered. No, I want to see more. Not this afternoon, Flag said. You've seen enough this afternoon. You can come again when you want. 
Although if you come too often, you'll surely be caught. Now, come on, we're going back. Flag relit the magic flame and led Thomas down the corridor again. At the end, he put the light out, and there was another sliding sound as he opened a peephole. He guided Thomas' hands so he knew um, where he was, and then he bade him to look. Notice that you can see the passageway in both directions, Flag said. Always be careful to look before you open the secret door, or someday you'll be surprised. Thomas took put one eye to the peephole and saw directly across the corridor an ornate window with glass sides that angled slightly into the passageway. It was much too fancy for such a small passageway, but Thomas understood without having to be told that it had been put there by whomever had made the secret passage. Looking in, into the angled sides, he could indeed see a ghostly reflection of the corridor in both directions. Empty, Flag whispered. Yes, Thomas whispered back. Flag pushed an interior spring, again guiding Thomas' hand to it for future reference, and the door clicked open. Quickly now, Flag said. They were out, and the door was shut behind them in a, in a trice. Ten minutes later, they were back in Thomas' rooms. Enough excitement for one day, Flag said. Remember what I told you, Tommy. Don't use the passageway so often that you'll be caught. And if you are caught, Flag's eyes glittered grimly, remember, you found that place by accident. I will, Thomas said quickly. His voice was high and squeaked like a hinge that needed oil. When Flag looked at him that way, his heart felt like a bird caught in his chest, fluttering in panic. Chapter 27 Thomas heeded Flagg's advice not to go often, but he did use the passageway from time to time and peek at his father through the glass eyes of Nina. Peeked into a world where everything became greeny gold. Going away later with a pounding headache, as he almost always did, he would think, your headaches because you were seeing the way dragons must see the world, as if everything is dried out and ready to burn. And perhaps Flagg's instinct for mischief in this matter was not so bad at all, because by spying on his father, Thomas learned to feel a new thing for Rowland. Before he knew about the secret passageway, he had felt love for him, and often a sorrow that he could not please him better and sometimes fear. Now he learned to feel contempt as well. Whenever Thomas spied into Rowland's sitting room and found his father in company, he left again quickly. He only lingered when his father was alone. In the past, Rowland rarely had been even in such rooms as his den, which is a part of his private apartment. There was always one more urgent matter to be attended, one more advisor to see, one more petition to hear. But Rowland's time of power was passing. As his importance waned with his good health, he found himself remembering all the times he had cried to either Sasha or Flag, won't these people ever leave me alone? The memory brought a rueful smile to his lips. Now that they did, he missed them. Thomas felt contempt because people are rarely at their best when they are alone. They usually put their masks of politeness, good order, and good breeding aside. And what's beneath? Some warty monster, some disgusting thing that would make people run away screaming? Well, sometimes perhaps, but usually it's nothing bad at all. Usually people would just laugh if they saw us with our masks off. Laugh, make a revolted face, or do both at the same time. Thomas saw that his father, whom he had almost always loved and feared, who had seemed to be the greatest man in the world, often picked his nose when he was alone. He would root around in first one nostril and then the other until he got a plump green booger. He would regard these with solemn satisfaction, turning each one 
this way and that in the firelight, the way a jeweler might turn a particularly fine emerald. Most of these he would then rub under the chair in which he was sitting. Others, I regret to say, he popped into his mouth and munched with an expression of reflective enjoyment on his face. He would have only a single glass of wine at night, the glass which Peter brought him. But after Peter left, he drank what seemed to Thomas huge amounts of beer. It was only ten years later that Thomas came to realize that his father hadn't wanted Peter to see him drunk. And when he needed to urinate, he rarely used the commode in the corner. Sometimes he simply stood up and peed in the fire, often farting as he did so. He talked to himself, sometimes walked around the living room like a man who was not sure where he was, speaking either to the air or to the mounted heads. Remember that day we got you Bonesy, he would say to one of the elk heads. Another of his eccentricities was that he had named every one of his trophies. It was Bill Squathings, and that fellow with the great lump on the side of his face. I remember how you came through the trees, and Bill let loose, and then that fellow with the lump let loose, and then I let loose. Then his father would demonstrate how he let loose by raising his leg and farting, even as he mind drawing back a bowstring and letting fly. He would laugh an old man's shrill and unpleasant cackle. Thomas would slide the little panels back after a while, slink down the corridor again, his head pounding and an uneasy grin on his face. The head and grin of a boy who had been eating green apples and knows he may be sicker by morning than he is now. This was the father he had always loved and feared. He was an old man who farted out stinking clouds of steam. This was the king his loyal subjects called Rowland the Good. He peed into the fire, sending up more clouds of steam. And this was the man who had made his heart break by not liking his boat. He talked to the stuffed heads on the walls, calling them silly names like Bonesy and Stagpool and Pucker String. He picked his nose and sometimes ate his boogers. They don't care for you anymore, Thomas would think, checking the peephole to make sure the corridor was empty and then creeping back to his room like a felon. You're a filthy, silly old man and you're nothing to me. Nothing at all, no. But he was something to Thomas. Some part of him went on loving Rollin just the same. Some part of him wanted to go to his father so his father would have something better to talk to than a bunch of stuffed heads on the walls. Still, there was another part of him that liked spying better. Chapter 28 The night that Flag came to King Rollin's private rooms with a glass of poisoned wine was the first occasion in a very long time that Thomas had dared to spy. There was a good reason for this. One night, about three months before, Thomas found himself unable to sleep. He tossed and turned until he heard the keep watchman cry eleven. Then he got up, dressed, and left his rooms. Less than ten minutes later, he was looking down into his father's den. He had thought his father might be asleep, but he was not. Rollin was awake and drunk. Very, very drunk. Thomas had seen his father drunk many times before, but he had never seen him in anything remotely like his current state. The boy had flabbergasted and badly frightened. There were people much older than Thomas was then who harbored the idea that old age is always a gentle time, that an old person may exhibit gentle wisdom, gentle crabbiness or craftiness, and perhaps the gentle confusion of senility. They will grant these, but find it hard to credit any real fire. They have an illusion that by the 70s any real fire must have faded to coals. That may be true, but on this night, Thomas discovered that coals may sometimes flare up violently. His father was 
was striding rapidly up and down the length of his sitting room, his fur robe flying out behind him. His nightcap had fallen off. His remaining hair hung down in tangled locks, mostly about his ears. He was not staggering, as he had done on other nights, moving tentatively with one hand out to keep from running into the furniture. He was rolling like a sailor, but he was not staggering. When he did happen to run into one of the high-backed chairs which stood near the walls beneath the snarling head of a lynx, Rollin threw the chair aside with a roar that made Thomas cringe. The hairs on his arms prickled. The chair flew across the room and hit the far wall. Its ironwood back splintered down the middle. In his drunken bitterness, the old king had regained the strength of his middle years. He looked up at the lynx's head with the red, glaring eyes. Bite me, he roared at it. The raw hoarseness in his breath made Thomas cringe again. Bite me, are you afraid? Come down out of that wall, cracker, jump. Here's my chest, see? And he tore open his robe, revealing a scrawny chest. He bared his few teeth at Cracker's many and lifted his head. Here's my neck. Come on, jump. I'll do it with my bare hands. I'll rip your stinking guts out. He stood for a moment, chest out and head up, looking like an animal himself, an ancient stag, perhaps, that has been brought to bay and can now hope for nothing better than to die well. Then he whirled around, stopping at a boar's head to shake his fist at it and roar a string of curses, curses so terrible that Thomas, cringing in the dark, believed that the bear's outraged spirit might swoop down and reanimate the stuffed head and tear his father open while he watched. But Rowland was away again. He seized his mug and drained it, then whirled the, brewing, the brew dripping from his chops. He hurled the silver mug across the room where it struck a stone angle in the fireplace hard enough to leave a dent in the metal. Now his father came down the room toward him, throwing another chair out of the way, then kicking the table aside with his bare foot. His eyes flicked up and met Thomas' own. Yes, they met his own eyes. Thomas felt their gazes lock, and a gray swooning terror filled him like a frozen breath. His father stalked toward him, his yellow teeth bared and remaining hair hanging over his ears, beer dripping from his chin and the corners of his mouth. You, Rowan whispered in a terrible voice. Why do you stare at me? What do you hope to see? Thomas could not move. Found out, his mind gibbered. Found out by all the gods that ever were and shall be. I am found out and I shall surely be exiled. His father stood there, his eyes fixed on the mounted dragon's head. In his guilt, Thomas was sure his father had spoken to him. But this was not so. Rowan had only spoken to Nina as he had spoken to the other heads. Yet, if Thomas could see out the tinted glass eyeballs, then his father could see in, at least to some degree. If Tommen, Thomas hadn't been utterly paralyzed with fear, he would have run away in panic. And even if he had summoned enough presence of mind to hold his ground, his eyes surely would have moved. And if Rowland had seen the eyes of the dragon move, what might he have thought? That the dragon was coming to life again, perhaps. In his drunken state, I think it likely... If Thomas had so much as blinked his eyes on that occasion, Flag would have needed no poison later. The king, old and frail, in spite of the temporary potency the drink had given him, would almost surely have died of fright. Rollins suddenly leapt forward. Why do you stare at me? He shrieked in his drunkenness at Neener, Delane's last dragon that he had shrieked at. But of course, Thomas didn't know that. Why do you stare at me so? I've done the best I could, always been the best I could. Why did I ask for this? Did I ask for it? Answer me, damn you! I did the best I could, and look at me now! Look at me! 
and he pulled his robe wide open, showing his body, its gray skin blotchy, flushed with drink. Look at me now, he shrieked again, and he looked down at himself, weeping. Thomas could take no more, and he slammed shut the panels behind the dragon's glass eyes. At the same moment, his father took his eyes from Nina to look down at his own wasted body. Thomas crashed and blundered down the black corridor and slammed full force into the closed door, braining himself and falling in a heap. He was up in a moment, unaware of the blood pouring down his face from a cut in his forehead, pounding at the secret spring until the door popped open. He rushed out into the corridor, not even thinking to check if anyone was there to see him. All he could see was his father's glaring, bloodshot eyes. All he could hear was his father screaming, Why do you stare at me? He had no way of knowing that his father had already fallen asleep. In when Rowland woke up the next morning, he was still on the floor, and the first thing he did, in spite of his fiercely aching head and his throbbing, bruised body, Rowland was far too old for strenuous rebels, and was to, was to look at the dragon's head. He rarely dreamed when he was drunk. There was only an interval of sodden darkness, but last night a terrible dream had come to him. The glass eyes of the dragon's head had moved, and Neener had come to life. The worm breathed its deadly breath down on him, and although he could not see that fire, he could feel it deep down inside him, hot and getting hotter. With this dream still lingering fresh in his mind, he decided he might see what he might see when he looked up. But all was as it had been for years now. Neener snarled his fearsome snarl, his forked tongue lulled between teeth almost as long as fence pickets. His green glass eyes stared blankly across the room. Ceremonially crossed above this fabulous trophy were Rollins' great bow and the arrow foe hammer, its tip and shaft still black with dragon's blood. He mentioned this terrible dream once to Flag, who only nodded and looked more thoughtful than usual. Then Rollins simply forgot it. Forgetting was not so easy for Thomas. He was haunted for weeks by nightmares, in them, his father stared at him and shrieked, See what you've done to me! And threw open his robe to display his nakedness, old and puckered scars, drooping bellies, sagging muscles, as if to say this too had been Thomas' fault, that if he hadn't spied... Why do you never want to see father anymore? Peter asked him one day. He thinks you're mad at him. That I'm mad at him? Thomas was astounded. That's what he said at tea today, Peter said. He looked at his brother closely, observing the dark circles under Thomas' eyes, the pallor of Tom's cheeks and forehead. Tom, what's wrong? Uh, maybe nothing, Thomas said slowly. The next day, he took tea with his father and brother. Going took all of his courage, but Thomas did have courage, and he sometimes found it. Usually, when his back was to the wall, his father gave him a kiss and asked him if anything were wrong. Thomas muttered that he hadn't been feeling well, but now he felt fine. His father nodded, gave him a rough hug, then went back to his usual behavior, which consisted mostly of ignoring Thomas in favor of Peter. For once, Thomas welcomed this. He didn't want his father looking at him any more than necessary, at least for a while. And that night, lying awake for a long time in bed and listening to the wind moan outside, he came to a conclusion that he had had a very, very close shave. But that he had somehow gotten away with it. But never again, he thought, and the weeks after, the nightmares came less and less frequently. Finally, they stopped altogether. Still, 
The castle's head groom, Yosef, was right about one thing. Boys are sometimes better at pledging vows than they are at keeping them, and Thomas' desire to spy on his father at last grew greater and stronger than both his fears and his good intentions. And that is how it happened that on the night Flag came to Rowland with poisoned wine, Thomas was watching. Chapter 29 When Thomas got there and slid aside the two little panels, his father and his brother were just finishing their nightly glass of wine together. Peter was now almost seventeen, tall and handsome. The two of them sat by the fire, drinking and talking like old friends. Thomas felt the old hate fill his heart with acid. After some little time, Peter arose and took courteous leave of his father. You leave earlier and earlier these nights, Rowland remarked. Peter made some demurral. Rowland smiled. It was a sweet, sad smile, mostly toothless. I hear, said he, that she is lovely. Peter looked flustered, which was uncommon with him. He stammered, which was even less common. Go, Rowland interrupted. Go, be gentle with her, and be kind. But be hot, if there is ardor in you. Later years are cold years, Peter. Be hot while your years are green and fuel is plentiful, and the fire may burn high. Peter smiled. You speak as if you're very old, Father. You still look strong and hale to me. Rowland embraced Peter. I love you, he said. Peter smiled with no awkwardness or embarrassment. I love you too, Dad, he said, and in his, lone, and in his lonely darkness, spine is always lonely work, and the spire almost always does it in the dark, Thomas pulled a horrible face. Peter left. For an hour or more, not much happened. Rowland sat morosely by the fire, drinking glass after glass of beer. He did not roar or bellow or talk to the heads on the wall. There was no destruction of furniture, and Thomas had almost made up his mind to leave when there was a double rap at the door. Rowland had been looking into the fire almost hypnotically by the flickered play of the flames. Now he roused himself and called, Who comes? Thomas heard no response, but his father rose and went to the door as if he had. He opened it, and at first Thomas thought his father's habit of talking to the heads on the wall had taken a queer new turn, that his father was now inventing invisible human company to relieve his boredom. Strange to see you here at this hour, Rowland said, apparently walking backward toward the fire in the company of no one at all. I thought you were always at your spells and conjurations after dark. Thomas blinked, rubbed his eyes, and saw someone was there after all. For a moment, he couldn't rightly make out who, and then he wondered how he could possibly have thought his father was alone when Flag was right there beside him. And Flag was carrying two glasses of wine on a silver tray. Wise tales, my lord. Magicians conjure early as well as late. But, of course, we have our, dark, our darksome image to keep up. Rollins' sense of humor was always improved by beer, so much so that he often laughed at things that weren't funny in the least. At this remark, he threw back his head and bellowed as if it were the greatest joke he had ever heard. Flag smiled thinly. When Rollins' fit of laughing had passed, he said, What's this, wine? Your son is barely more than a boy but his deference toward his father and his honor of his king would shame me, a grown man, Flag said. I brought you a glass of wine, my king, to show you that I too love you. He passed it to Rowan, who looked absurdly touched. Don't drink it, father, Thomas thought suddenly. His mind was full of an alarm he couldn't understand. Rowan's head came up suddenly and tilted as almost as if he had heard. He's a good boy, my Peter, Rowan said. Indeed, Flag replied. Everyone in the kingdom says so. They do? Rowan asked, looking pleased. Do they indeed? Yes, so they do. 
Shall we toast him? Flag raised his glass. No, father, Thomas shouted in his mind. But if his father had heard his first thoughts, he didn't hear this one. His face shone with love for Thomas' elder brother. To Peter, then. Rollin raised the glass of poison wine high. To Peter, Flag agreed, smiling. To the king. Thomas cringed in the dark. Flag's making two different toasts. I don't know what he means, but father... This time it was Flag who turned his darkly considerate gaze toward the dragon's head for a moment, as if he had heard the thought. Thomas froze, and in a moment Flag's gaze turned back to Rollin. They clinked glasses and drank. As his father quaffed the glass of wine, Thomas felt a splinter of ice push its way into his heart. Flag made a half turn in his chair and threw his glass to the fire. Peter! Peter! Rollin echoed and threw his own. It smashed against the sooty brickwork at the back of the fireplace and fell into the flames, which for a moment seemed to flare an ugly green. Rowland raised the back of his hand to his mouth for a moment to stifle a belch. Did you spice it, he asked. It tasted almost mulled. No, my lord, Flag said gravely. Thomas thought he sensed a smile behind the mask of the magician's gravity. The splinter of ice slipped further into his heart. Suddenly, he wanted no more of spine. Not ever. He closed the peepholes and crept back to his room. He first felt hot, then cold, then hot again. By morning, he had a fever. Before he was well again, his father was dead, his brother in prison, in a room at the top of the needle, and he was a boy king at an age of barely 12. Thomas the Lightbringer, he was dubbed as the coronation ceremonies went on. And who was his closest advisor? You guessed flag. Chapter 30. When Flag left Rollin, the old man was feeling sprightlier than ever by then, a sure sign the dragon sand was at work in him. He went back to his dark basement rooms, got out the tweezers and the packet containing the remaining few grains of sand, put them in his huge old desk. Then he turned his hourglass over and resumed reading. Outside, the wind screamed and gobbled, and old wives cringed in their beds and slept poorly, told their husbands that Rhyanon, the dark witch of the coos, was riding her hateful broom this night, and wicked work was afoot. The husbands grunted, turned over, and told their wives to go back to sleep and leave them alone. They were dull fellows, for the most part. When an eye is wanted to see straws flying in the wind, give me an old wife any day. Once a spider skittered halfway across Flag's book, touched a spell so terrible not even the magician dared use it, and turned instantly to stone. Flag grinned. When the hourglass was empty, he turned it over again, and again, and again. He turned it over eight times in all, and when the eight hours' worth of sand was nearly gone, he set about finishing his work. He kept a large number of animals in a dim room in the hall from his study, and he went there first, the little creatures skittered and cringed when Flag came near. He did not blame them. In the far corner was a wicker cage containing half a dozen brown mice. Such mice were everywhere in the castle, and that was important. Down here, they were almost as huge as rats. But it was not a rat Flag wanted tonight. The royal rat upstairs had been poisoned. A simple mouse would be enough to make sure the crim crime came home to the royal rattling. If all went well, Peter would soon be tightly locked up as these mice. Flag reached into the cage and removed one. It trembled wildly in his cupped hand. He could feel the rapid thumping of its heart. 
and he knew that if he simply held it, it would soon die of fright. Flag pointed the little finger of his left hand at the mouse, and the fingernail glowed faintly blue for a moment. Sleep, the magician commanded, and the mouse fell on its side and went to sleep on his open palm. Flag took it back to his study and laid it on his desk, where the obsidian paperweight had rested earlier. Now he went to his larder and drew a little mead from an oaken barrel into a saucer. He sweetened it with honey, put it on his desk, and then went out into the corridor, breathed deeply at the window again. Holding his breath, he came back in and used the tweezers to pour all but the last three or four grains of dragon sand into the honey-sweetened mead. Then he opened another drawer of his desk and removed a fresh packet, which was empty. Then reaching all the way to the back of his drawer, he brought out a very special box. The fresh packet was bewitched, but its magic was not very strong. It would hold the dragon sand safely only for a short while. Then it would begin to work on the paper. It would not set it alight, not inside the box. There would not be enough air for that. But it would smoke and smolder, and that would be enough. That would be fine. Flag's chest was thudding for air, but he still spared a moment to look at this box and congratulate himself. He had stolen it ten years ago. If you'd asked him at that time why he took it, he would have known no more than he knew why he had shown Thomas the secret passage that ended behind the dragon's head. That instinct for mischief had told him to take it, and that he would find a use for it. So he had. After all these years, in his desk, that useful time had come. Peter was engraved across the top of the box. Sasha had given it to her boy. He had left it for a moment on a table in the hallway when he had run down the hallway after something or other. Flag had come along, saw it, and popped it into his pocket. Peter had been grief-stricken, of course, when it, and when a prince is upset, even a prince who is only six years old, people take notice. There had been a search, but the box had never been found. Using the tweezers, Flag carefully poured the last few grains of dragon sand from the original package, which had been wholly enchanted, into the package, which had only been incompletely enchanted. Then he went back to the window in the corridor and drew a fresh breath. He did not breathe again until the fresh packet had been laid in the antique wooden box, the tweezers laid in there beside it, the top of the box slowly closed, and the original packet disposed of in the sewer. Flag was hurrying now. He felt secure enough. Mouse sleeping, box closed, incriminating evidence safely latched inside. It is very well indeed. Pointing the little finger of his left hand at the mouse, lying stretched out at the desk like a fur rug for pixies, Flag commanded, wake. The mouse's feet twitched. His eyes opened. His head came up. Smiling, Flag wiggled his little finger in a circle and said, run. And the mouse ran in circles. Flag wiggled his finger up and down, jump, and the mouse began to jump on its hind legs like a dog in a carnival, his eyes rolling wildly. Now drink, said Flag, and he pointed his little finger at the dish, holding the honey-sweetened mead. Outside, the wind gushed to a roar. On the far side of the city, a, a bitch gave birth to a litter of two-headed pups, and the mouse drank. Now, said Flag, when the mouse had drunk enough of the poison to serve his purpose, sleep. And the mouse did. Flag hurried to Peter's room. The box was in one of his many pockets. Magicians have many, many pockets, and that sleeping mouse was in another. He passed several servants and the laughing gaggle of drunken courtiers, but none saw him. He was still dim. 
Peter's rooms were locked, but that was no problem for one of Flag's talents. Three passes of his hand and the door was open. A young prince's rooms were empty, of course. The boy was still with his lady friend. Flag didn't know how much that much about Peter so much as he did about Thomas, but he knew enough. He knew, for instance, where Peter kept the few treasures he thought worth hiding away. And Flag went directly to the bookcase, pulled out three or four boring textbooks, pushed at the wooden edging, and heard a spring click back, and then slid a panel aside, revealing a recess in the back of the case. It was not even locked. In the recess, a silk hair ribbon his lady had given him, a packet of letters she had written him, a few letters from him to her which burned so brightly he did not dare to send them, and a little locket with his mother's picture inside it. Flag opened the engraved box and very carefully shredded one corner of the packet's flap. Now it looked as if a mouse had been chewing on it. Flag closed the lid again and put the mouse in the recessed space. You cried so when you lost this box, dear prince, he murmured. I think you may cry even more when it's found, he giggled. He put the sleeping mouse beside the box, closed the compartment, and put the books neatly back in place. Then he left, and he slept well. Great mischief was afoot, and he felt confident that he had moved as he liked to move, behind the scenes, seen by no one.